You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts today are Carlos Casados, Satch Purcell, and Oliver Alti. Our guest today is Mark Beckelman. Now, Mark is a good friend of ours, and we've actually wanted to have him on the show for a long time, so we're pretty excited about this. Mark is a retired Marine, a marksman, uh, an airplane mechanic. He works with cooling and refrigeration and electricity generation, uh, and he also makes guitars and basically tinkers with everything. And we get into things like the skill and craftsmanship that goes into everyday objects around your house. Also, energy. When you turn on the light switch, where does that power come from? We talk about fossil fuels, electric cars, different ways of generating energy and making it more efficient, what the future of energy production might look like, and, and, so, and so many other things. This is a conversation between good friends who've known each other for a long time and are really happy to be spending time together. Mark Beckelman, welcome to The Authenticity Show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. welcome. It's going to be fun. I can tell already. You're, you're, you're a, an interesting, funny guy just from our chit-chat, and I think we're going to go be places. Yeah. yeah, and you better That's be That's a stretch. I mean, as, as a Texan and a retired <laughs> jarhead, count. a lack of confidence is not my particular problem. <laughs> I mean, there's plenty others, but that's just not one of them. Uh, so we'll see what happens. So, Mark, how long have we known each other? I didn't know there was going to be math. Um, uh, quite a while. Probably at least 15 years, maybe? No, nine? Somewhere, somewhere, somewhere in there. Somewhere between around. 10 and 15, I'd yeah. say. I think when we first met each other, we were part of a ragtag druidic order worshipping the moon next to a campfire in my backyard. Sounds about right. Does that, does that, that sound right? That is an accurate statement. Yeah. Uh, I think I purposely blocked that history out, but yeah, that's an accurate statement. <laughs> Well, I was invited were to that. Let's just, so, let's, yeah. let's just leave it at that. Mistakes were made. <laughs> <laughs> but fun was had. Oh, a lot of fun. And then I think I remember asking you to fix my lawnmower. Uh, yes. And I, I can't I, remember if I did or didn't. I don't think you did. <laughs> <laughs> but you could have. Uh, yes. so one of the things so about I you, Mark, you that I've always appreciated is that you can fix anything. This is one of your, one of your talents. Yes. If it has moving parts, I can fix it. Uh, when we get to things that are solid state or electronics and stuff like that, I have a little, little more difficulty with it. But, uh, you know, mechanical devices have always intrigued me. And if it's, you know, mechanisms, watches, clockworks, internal combustion engines, turbine engines, you name it, I can airplanes? usually turn around. Airplanes, yes. I can make hunks of aluminum and magnesium fly. So. Cool. That's, that's pretty awesome. What, why are you like this? I get hit in the head a lot. Uh, Why like this, Mark? Why like this? (laughs) Um, I don't know. I always had a natural curiosity, even from a young age. I drove my father nuts taking apart everything I could get my hands on. Um, And then very quickly, that turned into a love affair with cars, aircraft. Um, And then from there, it kind of morphed into what he does for a living, which is industrial refrigeration. So by the age of 11, I was working on equipment that cools some of the largest buildings that we have in Texas and California. Cool. And just kind of picked it up from there. Just always had a natural inclination for it and a natural drive for it. Mm. So, Mark. Yes, sir. You are a Marine. Yes. Is that a correct? Did I phrase that correctly? Yes. Once a Marine, always a Marine. Yes. So, um... Tell us a little bit about your experience in the Marine Corps, if you don't mind, and uh, how it uh, made you who you are today. Um, unfortunately, due to powers beyond my control, I cannot discuss some of it. 
uh, some of it I can. I'm not at liberty to discuss a lot of it. Ooh, that's um, fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I could tell you, but then I would have to have Carlos kill you. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, There's no better way to die than have Carlos kill me. It's true. Um, the last amount of my time in the military, uh, I was a member of the Air Wing. I was uh, servicing a McDonnell Douglas version of the F-18 aircraft, fighter attack aircraft, um, serving with Marines at um, Marine Corps Air Station, Miramar in San Diego. Um, and it was a unique time. It, was, um, uh, it took one of my childhood loves of, of uh, aircraft specifically, and it was nice to be able to kind of feed and, and maintain and care for that kind of machine. And, and watch something that essentially comes down to the ultimate engineering compromise, take flight and go out and do something with a purpose. And at the same time, there was a lot of importance there because Marines on the ground rely on that aircraft to be there on station on time and deliver its ordinance in a timely manner. And at the same time, every time I send a bird aloft, I got someone's husband or someone's brother or someone's son in that aircraft, and they're trusting my care of that airplane to keep them safe. So it... It was very, very challenging, a lot of work, and, but uh, at the same time, it was very, very rewarding. What do you mean when you say the aircraft was an engineering compromise? Well, with, with aircraft, any aircraft, whether it's the giant tubes of funk that everyone flies across the country in or um, you know the little aerobatic aircraft that you see at the air shows, the engineer's purpose... For that aircraft, each time you change a dynamic, you change another one on it. Uh, if you want to fly faster, you need a bigger engine. Well, that bigger engine is heavier. That needs more lift. Well, more lift means more drag, less speed. So now you need an even bigger engine. So you have to, you run into the law of diminishing returns very, very quickly with aircraft. Um, a lot of compromising. And you have to compromise. Oh, well, yes, I want to reach Mach 5, but I need to do it with a small wing and very you know low lift capabilities. So the aircraft loses its aerodynamic uh, properties very quickly, or it doesn't, uh, doesn't have much agility, it doesn't turn in, 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 in the air, or it needs a super ginormous you know, a turbine engine or a rocket motor or something along those lines to propel it to get it to those speeds, which creates a whole bunch of maintenance issues or other challenges to, to get that aircraft in the air. Did you study this in school, or did you learn on the job, or how did you learn this stuff? I am not a great learner through formal education. Uh, I learn with putting my my greasy mitts on something and taking it apart, putting it back together, watching people do it, my own natural curiosity. You're a how person. Yeah. I, I, I love the why. I love the theory. I love diving into the theory, the physics behind it. But at the same time, I really kind of light up when I get my hands on that device in front of me. I'm severely dyslexic, so I don't work well in two-dimensional media. I prefer three-dimensional media. That's how I just tend to interact. I'm very good with three-dimensional puzzles or putting things together and taking them apart. Reading, writing, those things not so much. Um, not to mention the English language is impossible and it makes no sense and it has no theory behind it. <laughs> so uh, It's a bastard uh, language. Yeah, it's, it's awful. You know, I don't know how R-O-U-G-H can be rough and then you put a T-H in front of it and it's ooh. That makes no sense yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, so... Mechanical things and devices like that, they have certain constraints that they operate into. They're very predictable. They're repeatable. They have those kind of things that just work with my brain. And you did, um, you were a marksman ins instructor, right? You, you did yes. on the firing range and yeah. all that? Mm -hmm. um, both as a civilian as, and in the military as well. Yeah. Uh, sh shooting is peaceful. It's very zen for me. You know, I just... You kind of block everything out, and then it gets to the point where you can literally see your heartbeat and your reticle, and you learn to 
break the sear and let that round go downrange in between the stages of your heartbeat. And it's very, very insulating and very womb-like in that kind of condition. And I was going to say, you know, at, at first when you hear something like that, that, oh, you know, being a marksman shooting is, is peaceful, you know. Yeah. At first it sounds contradictory, <laughs> but then you realize that all those traditions came from things that were similar. Yeah. Zen and the art of archery, that's not right. that different, you know. Um, being in a state of satori when you're swinging your samurai sword around. I mean, so yeah. they all are, it is still, you know, shooting is a martial tradition, right? Yeah. So, and, I mean, it's... And you consider it sense. a martial art. It is an art. There it, is yeah. an art form to it. Yeah. And, you know, you, you said shooting, you didn't say killing. <clears throat> you said shooting is peaceful. You didn't it say is. Killing is. Um, so, so that's the, the important distinction. The phrase war is hell is both a gross understatement and a very accurate statement at the same yeah. time. We spend a lot of time over romanticizing it. You know, I mean, through literature and culture, and, yeah, and culture, and yeah. you know, you know, pop culture and things like that. Um, but it has a heavy, heavy price, both for those who are forever changed by it physically, and those who just uh, um, partake in it. Mm. There's a heavy cost for that, and I think we're a little too cavalier with that cost. Mm. Mark, have you um, noticed changes in? the way you feel about that over the over the decades of you know before getting into the military during the military then say in the, in the subsequent years after having gone through those things has your I, your feeling about it altered or, or shifted along the way um i had a strong moral compass going in not necessarily a judeo-christian based moral compass but a strong moral compass of what was right and wrong how to treat people and then my experiences interacting with people all over the globe i that naivete of what, how great America is or how great, you know, how we're the shining light on the hill and we're the, the, the standard of what humanity is kind of got stripped mm -hmm. away and I got to see that people are just people. Yeah. If you treat them well, you treat them with respect and you treat them with kindness, they're going to do the same unto you. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's true for about 90% of the population worldwide. And then there's the 10% that just ruin it for everybody. And that's probably why I was in that country in the first place. And because they decided to fly a plane into uh, a building full of innocent people. And mm. um, whether or not you believe one side or the other when it comes to those arguments. But when I was in those situations, it's, there was a righteous anger. It's like you hurt innocent people. You don't hurt innocent people. They did nothing to you. So I kind of had that armor going into it. Mm. to kind of shield myself from those kind of things. I felt I had a purpose to be there. I didn't have any amb ambiguity in what I was doing. Wow. How long were you in the Marines? Uh, I was medically retired after eight years. Eight years, wow, yeah. Yeah, I used to work with a Marine that, that really, really did teach me this concept that there are no ex-Marines. There are no ex-Marines. He always taught me that. Only retired Marines. I'm like, okay, now I understand. I, we even get uppity about former Marine as well. It's former, like once yeah. a Marine, always a Marine. Yeah, he said retired is okay. Yeah. You know, you could yeah. say that retired. So, yeah. wow. Well, after eight years, I'd be re very retired for sure. Yeah. It's yeah, a lot of work. Sure. It, it is. It'll, it'll chew you up and spit you out pretty quick. That's probably why I'm, I'm pretty much shot. Uh, my knees are no good and back's no good and you name it and it probably hurts. And, I'm, and yet you're still standing. I am incredibly stubborn. <laughs> um, you know, typically when you interact with someone for the first time, it's like, hi, how you doing? And for me, it's like, hey, I'm upright and breathing. That's a win. We're good. I'm on the right side of the dirt. Everything else, we'll approach that problem as we get to it. But hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm looking at you. So it's a, it's a win for me.
I'm a guitar player, mm-hmm. and uh, you're a guitar player too. I play a little bit more than you, mm-hmm. but you actually like work on guitars, and you know how to like make the wood do what it does, and put the frets on, and like make the knobs do the stuff. See, that's it's interesting because we're both into guitars, but we have totally different kind of angles on it. Well, and this is going to be a weird allegory, but hang around with I me. I love weird allegories. So. Every inanimate object that has been engineered, designed, it has a purpose. The person who made that, the table in front of you, the cell phone in your pocket, the glass you drink water from, it all had a purpose. Someone put an intent to an inanimate object, and for me, it kind of gives that inanimate object life. So It's a gullum. Yeah. It's a, it's a good way to look at it. And that's one of the reasons why I feel that even though I'm a mechanic and I deal with it feels like I'm creating, I'm giving, I'm repurposing or giving purpose back to this inanimate object that unto itself, maybe some people would consider discarded or not used. And a guitar itself, if you break it down to the science and the physics of it, it is a mechanical system. It does operate within the laws of physics and, you know, the things we know and where it becomes a tool of magic or anything like it is in an artist hands like that. But at the same time, if I put my intention, my heart, my mind, my soul into developing that instrument, I'm imbuing it, it unto itself with its own personality, and then I turn it over to someone like Oliver, and then he makes something with it that I couldn't make. And so you break it down, it's hunks of wood and bits of copper and chunks of metal, and they seem very pedantic and shallow, but when you put them together with that kind of intent and that kind of purpose, all of a sudden... It becomes Excalibur. It becomes that mythical thing that, um, you know, people write tales about. Um, and then as you sit there and play it and you, you know, the blood, sweat and tears and your emotions, it, you know, it, it kind of just holds, starts to hold this reverence. You know, you look like Trigger from Willie Nelson, you know. Right. Willie's only guitar. Uh, only guitar, Trigger, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, some of the Telecasters and Les Pauls that Jimmy Page played or, you know, Blackie. You know, from Eric Clapton and these almost mythical type instruments. When you look at their components, it's just wood and metal. But at the same time, it's this whole other thing, and that's and that's what fascinates me about them. Um, You know, the science of it. How does it work? Why does it work? And yeah, hanging on a rack and silent and not plugged into an amp. It's just a guitar. Right. But when I see that, I see the potential. When I when I go to Guitar Center or whatever, I look at all the guitars and I say, "Ooh, there's that one. There's something like emanating from it, you know." I can, yeah. and then you know, I pick it up and I'm like, "No, not that one." Then I'll find it, you know. There's a feeling. I don't know how to describe it, but I'm glad there are people like you out there making guitars or like building guitars or whatever, so I can, you know, have my. Well, see, I want to get to where you're at. I want to be able to take that science and that stuff that just kind of lights me up and gets me engaged and and connecting with this object. And now I want to make it feel. Now I want the stuff that's rattling around in my chest and rattling around in the back of my brain, take it away from the formulas and the mathematics and the, you know, 
you know, the radius of the fretboard and the, you know, what did I set the strings up for? And, you know, what's the ratio on the tuners and all the scientific stuff that while I love it to death, I want to get to that next level, that, that area where, all right, now I'm making this thing that I created express and I'm using it to communicate with the world around me. Yeah. You know, the guitar, I, I, I think about this a lot because I'm a musician, but the guitar is an instrument that really connects with audiences more so than other instruments. Like if you go to a concert and someone's playing the piano, it's like, okay, you know, if they're, if they're a good player, you can get a lot from it. But like when somebody plays the guitar, it's like, it's like they're showing you something. It's like they're here, look at this. It's like they're, they're pointing it at you and doing it to you almost, you know? Mm. Whereas the piano is more like I'm doing this and you're, you're like, you're listening to me, but I'm really doing this for myself. The guitar is like, mm, yeah. I'm just like doing this at you. you know? Yeah, you're, you're, you're facing guitar. the piano when you're playing the piano, but yeah, you're facing you the audience I'm when doing. you play yeah, the guitar. Yeah. Well, also, let's yeah, be honest, guitar players aren't known for preening, right? We're not the peacocks of the stage. We're not up there demanding the attention and... and you know, uh, but we are, <laughs> you know, it's, it, <laughs> yeah, it's, say, it's a natural, <laughs> it's a natural inclination, sarcasm aside, but, right. um, but at the same time, they're very colorful. They're not an instrument that's drab or something that blends in as a piece of furniture, like a piano or anything like that. It's not something that collects dust in the corner, especially mm-hmm. with someone who loves to play. They just have an inclination, ooh, guitar, pick it up. It's, and now it's making sound and I enjoy it. I, I, I like to say I play at guitar. I don't play guitar. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm working on it and I'm fairly competent and I can hold a rhythm and I can play and sing but I'm not a guitarist. I um I'm not I don't feel like I'm a musician. I feel like I'm a scientist trying to perform artwork. And um that sometimes doesn't work out. <laughs> you guys are reminding me of that photo I showed you earlier of uh Les Paul with Paul McCartney and and he's holding so the caption says Les Paul and Paul with Paul's Les Paul. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and I just love it. I think it's so cool. You know, Les Paul, obviously the the, the maker of the Les Paul guitar. But yeah, yeah it's so cool. Great. You know, um uh you make guitars and you were talking about um you know just, just having yourself in, in that guitar that you make and, and it reminds me of uh and I and I don't know the story very well, but there, there's some story out there where the Buddha had a conversation with somebody about an empty bowl, and the 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 bowl was empty apparently, and and the kid or whoever the person was told the Buddha, oh, that the bowl's empty. Then he started to correct the person to help the the person see all the things that actually were in the bowl. It's like you don't see fire in the bowl. So so when the pot was fired and it made the bowl, you see there's fire in the bowl. It's like, oh, okay, and there's water in the bowl. And then there's, you know, uh, the, the the sweat and the effort of the man, the potter who made the bowl. And you know mm. what I mean? And, and it's how you start to realize that what we think is just some inanimate object that's sitting there has such a connection to real life and history and people. And there's so much more to it than we think, you know? And so I just thought of that story when you're describing your guitars. Well, uh, cool. one of the things when I'm talking to the crews I manage is I told them, I said, and I can't remember if it was a Japanese proverb or a Chinese proverb, and they said, well, if you work with your hands, you're a laborer. If you work with your mind and your hands, you're a craftsman. If you work with your heart, your mind, and your hands, you're an artisan. What do you want to be? Mm. And for me, I, I, that, that just simple you know, um, phrase and that, those simple words, it's like, oh, wait a minute. You know, uh, if I'm going to take pride in what I do, if I'm going to take pride in what I create, 
whether it's something artistic or something mechanical, am I really doing something different than what, you know, the Renaissance greats when they painted, you know, I mean, I can't, I, I can't put myself in their headspace while they were doing it, but there's, there's a kinship there. You, you are making something from nothing, regardless of what it is. You are taking something and changing it and, and giving it purpose and intent. Nice. Nicely said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Guitars don't grow on trees, right? Very clearly. Well, they do. Yeah. Yeah. But just not in the form that right. you used to see. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like we look at all these guitars and I'm, now I'm starting to think about all the birds that landed on the trees that made the wood that made the, okay. It's, it's, right. Yeah. We all need each other. Yeah. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons why I like looking at instruments that came from interesting places or uh, have unique history to them. Um, I see them not just as an inter- instrument, but also as an art form. So uh, I take, you know, I also love looking, you know, looking at old houses and realizing, yeah, that wasn't made on a CNC machine. Mm-hmm. You know, a craftsman sat there with chisels and made that 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 scroll work and that mill work and that gingerbread for that Victorian. And there's there's someone's livelihood and there's a story behind that, and it kind of just gets washed away in the noise and the stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, in San Diego and Balboa Park, uh, there's there's a section called Heritage Park, and they had these very very old homes that have been relocated to this area, and some of them are in various stages of re- restoration. But there's a lot of this old lath and plaster work, and and um, to me, that's no different than looking at David. You know, yeah, you took mm. something that was rough and had no shape or purpose or anything and created something beautiful out of it. But yet, we walk by it every day in our homes, paying it no no attention. Mm. So um, when I'm talking to the guys I work with, um, you know, it's like, hey, I get it. You're hanging drywall and you're painting a wall, but you're not just hanging drywall and painting a wall. You're leaving, you know, your kind of mark on history. Yeah. There's a good chance no one's ever going to notice, but you'll know. Well, you'll notice. It, mm-hmm. it may not be as profound of, an, uh, of a piece of artwork to a lot of people, but let's face it, you know, a house is a lot more useful than, than in, you know, the Statue of David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's inspiring, but mm-hmm. as far as being useful and utilitarian and being able to produce things that produce things that produce things that produce things, a home has much more potential to do that. But then you also mm-hmm. get those homes, like the stuff from Frank Lloyd Wright and the other great architects, and mm-hmm. it's also inspiring. Oh, so it also has sure. this, this, you know, this yeah. form and function comes together and people, yeah. you know, it, it drops jaws. It's like, well, yeah, maybe that, that track home you live in um, doesn't seem like it has a story, mm. but... You know, there was teams of people providing for their families and building them. And um, I do think that in today's world, we look down on the trades as mm-hmm. maybe not so much as a noble work uh, area. There's something more to aspire to than swinging a hammer and building homes. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, maybe that's misplaced. Um, yeah, I, I agree with you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. People, I'm, I'm recently been, been having my bathrooms redone. And the guy that did my tile work in my bathroom was a fucking artist. And this guy was good, and there's no way I could do it. I mean, this guy was really amazing, and I, I really appreciated him. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a patient who is a plumber, mm-hmm. and he does, like, big plumbing jobs, like, you know, buildings and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And um, Same Joe? Uh, no, but but um, he's a super guy, um, and, and he... Uh, would tell me that like he'll he'll drive by some place and like there's like some huge building like in L.A. or something. He's like, 
I did all the plumbing. I did all, I laid down all the pipes for that building. It's like yeah. years and years and years will go by and people are using it. And every time you sit on the toilet or turn on the sink or you don't think of the person who made those pipes. And then um, he uh, had a chance not long ago to work on uh, laying down some of the, the pipe for the big um, football stadium that's being built in LA right now. And it's interesting because I'm thinking, wow, you know, like 20 years from now when I'm watching football games in that stadium, I'll think, hey, my patient was the guy who laid down the pipe right there. And, the, you know, <laughs> and, and that's, that's awesome. Yeah, it's neat. There's a legacy there. Well, yeah. and here's something that I, I try and communicate as well um, to people. It's like when you work in the trades, for the people who use those devices, it's almost like magic. You walk in, you turn on a light switch, light comes on. You ask your air conditioning to come on, it comes on. You go in and use the restroom, you flush the toilet, and it works. Until it doesn't. And then that person is having the worst day of their life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, had to take a cold shower, and then all sorts of muck came up from the sewers and all over the floors. <laughs> and and so usually when you interact with people, they're not in the greatest kind of sense. They're, they're in distress in some manner or another. And since I work kind of more in a commercial or industrial application, um, typically there's big impacts. So people are d upset about it. You know, people who have a very, very high s amount of self-importance, you know, have a tendency to look at the guy, well, you just got your name on your shirt. And um, they don't realize that, hey, yeah, this guy's been working 18 hours to get your lights back on. Uh, or, you know, a lot of us who, you know, people in the Midwest who have their power knocked out by storms or in the East, they don't realize that that lineman has been away from his family working on high voltage for 17, 18 hours. He's tired. What he's doing can kill him in a mistake, but they don't care until the light comes back on. So it kind of gets pushed to the corners, what it takes to keep the lights burning and your water running and those things and those jobs kind of get overlooked. And it's, it created a kind of a, right now it created a huge labor vacuum. Um, a lot of the people in my industry, you know, a, a huge percentage, like 65% are within 10 years of retirement. Mm. Mm. Well, I don't have a natural funnel to develop the talent because these, ch these kids are going to colleges and developing huge student debt for business administration degrees. And they're coming out and they're making far less than what I'm paying a guy turning a wrench on an air conditioner. Is it the case where the people who know the most are about to retire and there isn't somebody to take their place? That's, there's a huge knowledge vacuum there and there mm. doesn't exist a, the vocational schools got pushed to the wayside. The funding for these programs, ROP and high schools and stuff mm. like that. And it just kind of became a cultural norm that if you didn't get a college degree or if you work with your hands, it's kind of frowned upon, you're a less than. Mm. And it almost mm. became a, a, an implied caste system within the country. So yeah. it pushed people into colleges and it pushed people into degrees. And right now the, the, the employer of the most college graduates is Starbucks. You got a bunch of baristas with huge student debt mm. looking for that job where they can pay that off. And it has huge impacts and fallout on our economy. You know, it's, it drags it down. It soaks up people's disposable income and it creates stress and it's, it's pushing people to get developing families later. And there's all these other secondary issues, but at the same time, our infrastructure is crumbling you know, our pipes are failing. I mean, how many times do we see on the news that a water main broke here? You know, we have bridges that are 100 years old. And levees. And levees and, you know, yeah. and it's driving all our maintenance costs up, it's driving all our utility costs up, and it's driving all these things that is just putting more and more burden on those who don't perform that kind of work. Right. And sooner or later, there's not gonna be a guy there to patch that bridge because no one's gonna have that knowledge.
So can you tell us a little bit about, about what you're doing now and the type of industry you're doing? And maybe we can talk about that a little bit. Oh, sure. Um, I work uh, in a field known as cogeneration. Um, cogeneration is essentially what it boils down to is we take ener- one energy stream and we turn it into three, typically. Um, so if Why? you think about what it takes to operate your house, okay. you need your electricity to see, your natural gas to make hot water, um, and you get that from two separate places. Well, what I do is I use natural gas to turn an engine. That engine makes heat and it makes electricity. So it takes the thermal energy stored in that natural gas, it turns it into mechanical energy in the engine, with a byproduct of that being heat, and then it turn, that mechanical energy turns a generator, which turns that mechanical energy into electricity. That electricity is sent out to the facility to do what electricity does, operate air conditioners, turn on lights, operate equipment. Um, but at the same time, there's losses there. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? You know, the basic laws of physics and thermodynamics tell you that there's no direct rate of exchange. So we try and capture that, so what we call uh, waste heat recovery processes. And we take that heat, and real fancy way of doing it is we hang a giant radiator, just like the one in your car, in the, the waste heat stream, and we turn water into steam. Hmm. Well, then now we use that steam to make cold water for your air conditioning, to turn turbines to make more electricity, to heat, to drive pumps, all sorts of stuff that steam has done since the mid-1700s. Hmm. we're still applying those theories and it's all waste, something that we would just vent to the atmosphere anyway. So now a facility, a campus, college campuses, hospitals, things like that, instead of needing to purchase electricity and natural gas, they just purchase natural gas. Now, is it the cleanest, greenest way of doing it? Yes and no. Um, It depends on what mechanism you're turning that natural gas. What's the rate of exchange? Are you using an internal combustion engine? Are you using a turbine engine? Are you using a fuel cell? Or what are you using to, 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 to prompt that rate of exchange? But at the same time, those localized areas are far more efficient than the pulverized coal and gasified coal plants that are polluting the atmosphere. Mm. It's not the cleanest, it's cleaner. And it's a great bridge, especially for high energy consumers, between you know, purely green renewable sources and stuff that's really, really bad for us, hmm. you know, cause you're localized, there's less waste processes. You're trying to extract as much energy as possible at all points in times. You're not, it's, it's almost like nose to tail cooking. Try not to waste any of the animal unless you have to. It's the same thing in this process. And there's huge, especially in Southern California and San Diego specifically, there's huge economic factors, um, for those kind of things. Um, and it, it, it helps large corporations be better neighbors in doing it as well. Very interesting. Have there been any major changes in that uh, industry since you've been around doing it? Well, I've, I've been doing it as a civilian now since 2007, so okay. about 12 years. Mm-hmm. And if you think about what has changed in your pocket, you know, in your cell phone in the last 12 years, so there's huge advancements in control technologies, uh, the miniaturization of things um, that have allowed us to get even more efficient, even more efficient. But there are limitations. There's laws of diminishing returns. Um, these are industrial processes, so they have to be a little bit more robust. So your heat exchangers can't be as, uh, as fine as they need. Your exchanges isn't as great. You're going to have losses because you need something that's going to last 20, 30 years down the road. So it's tougher, but not necessarily capturing everything. Yeah. We're getting better at that, mm-hmm. and we're getting more efficient every single day. There's new materials technologies. There's new um, you know, predictive and analytic data 
there's new design philosophies on how we move fluids throughout systems. So we're getting better each and every iteration. However, since it's a huge monetary component and a huge investment from companies and corporations, it doesn't have the same kind of rate of change that you have with consumer goods. You know, because this device has got to go in, it typically goes in for 15, 20 years and no one looks at it again. And then unless there's legislative or external pressures, no one's really going to invest the money because frankly, no one cares if you went and completely repiped a building. They only care if you repainted the walls because that's what they see. They don't understand everything that happens behind the makeup, what you interact with on a daily basis. And you see a lot of that because you're the one who's behind the scenes, right? Yeah. Um, when I start on a new facility, I usually tell people, hi, I'm Mark. This will probably be the first time and last time you see me. If you do see me, if I'm running, try and keep up or run in the other direction and, and just leave it at that. Because <laughs> there's a problem. Yeah. Usually if you see me, you're having a very bad day. Mm. You know, we're kind of tunnel rats. Mm. We're behind the scenes and, you know, mm. but when something does go wrong, there's, you know, all of a sudden there just went a hundred million dollars or. Wow. Yeah. And you've seen some pretty crazy stuff. I've heard a couple yeah. of stories. Yeah. Pretty, hmm. pretty I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll change the names and the faces to protect the guilty, but yeah. yeah. Um, we can, we can discuss those as well. It gets interesting when you work with the kind of amplitude of energy. Yeah. Like what what kind of amplitude and voltage are we talking about? Um, typically it's an excess of 5,000 volts or higher. Um, Mm. typically, um, I've worked all the way up to 133,000 volts, you know, um, not much margin for error there. You You, you make them cook an egg on that. Right. (laughs) More than an egg. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so those things present challenges, you know, you make a mistake, you're not going to be around to make a second one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't, maybe one of the reasons why I was drawn to that, cause I enjoy that kind of danger. I enjoy that kind of boiling your existence down to the next five seconds. And you're not, you know, when I'm in switch gear working on something like that, I'm not thinking about my mortgage. I'm thinking about making sure I don't drop this nut. That's going to kill me, you know? Yeah. So it kind of, again, it just like with shooting, it gets to that Zen position where I have to push all the noise away. Yeah, I, I, I don't have to think about how uncomfortable I am, how tired I am, my back hurts, or anything like that. It's like, nope, it's the task in front of me, and that is the only thing in my existence right now. Grounds you in the present. Ah, it, very good. You know, and, I felt no resistance to that yeah, comment whatsoever. That yeah. It's <laughs> shocking, <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I mean, but statistically speaking, we kill 50 electricians a day in this country. Yikes. One for every state. Typically, it's wow. much less amplitude voltages it's people who know better and make poor decisions with stuff you know it's playing with fire then you stop respecting uh respecting it and something bad happens um you know so what i at the same time we're dealing with thermal energies high amplitude thermal energies excess of 2600 degrees fahrenheit you make a mistake around that you're you're not gonna be around your skin really doesn't tolerate anything above 145 140 145 degrees fahrenheit for any you know real length of time and then there's steam you know, steam, when it's nice contained in a pipe, is fairly innocuous, but you let it out, it expands by 1,600 times volumetrically. So it's extremely energetic. Yeah. So typically when it goes wrong, it goes really, really wrong. <laughs> Do you ever get explosions with the steam? Like uh, uh, Yes, steam explosions are common. And um, they're less common now because there's industrial practices in ocean, things like that. But um, a boiler, you know, there's pictures from, I think it was the Anheuser-Busch uh, brewery. They had a boiler explosion, level, level the city block. Wow. Yeah. So, wow. it, I mean, it's very, very energetic. Wow. It's interesting. You know, we've been using, like you were saying, we've been using steam to power things since the mid-1700s. Mm-hmm. And 
You know, I, I think I was talking to you about this the other day. It seems so archaic. We boil water to make steam to make our things go. Isn't there a more efficient or better way to do this in the it's, 21st century? If we could find a more renewable way to generate the heat, that cycle kind of maintains. You know, so I take a droplet of water, I put it into a boiler. I make it very, very energetic with heat, force it to change state. Now, water itself, it takes a lot of energy, an insane amount of energy, compared to other thermal transfer devices to get water to change state. So now I take it and I've turned it into vapor. Well, now I've got that energy contained in that vapor. Well, if I go forth and I let that, that vapor do work, that energy has been transferred into that mechanical work. And what do you think I get left behind? Water again. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had this un- re- relatively renewable system. As it comes back, that water now still has some thermal energy trapped in it because the ex- no free lunch in the exchange. So now it takes less heat to get it back into vapor. So once you get it there, it takes less and less heat to maintain it. The so hotter you can you- keep on reusing the same water, water and just kind of riding yeah. that level with it. Yeah, I mean, there's... Again, there's no free lunch there. There's things we have to do to kind of maintain the water chemistry and the, and, and the stuff behind it where we have to add more water. We have to dump some water to drain, and there's, there are waste involved. There's, you know, again, physics demands no free lunch. But in comparison, I'm not just throwing electrons down a stream that aren't returning. You know, I'm not just burning wood and using that heat in that one instance. It's being recaptured and reused multiple times over and over. Mm. Do you think we're going to continue to be using steam for electricity generation for centuries to come? Or how long are we going to be using it for? Uh, it really comes down to the method of uh, delivery. You know, even the big solar fields you see heading out to the 15, instead of using steam, they use molten salt. Molten uh, salt? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. Hmm. You know, Never uh, heard of that. Well, if you think about it, it makes sense. It's, uh, it creates a thermal mass. So you take all these mirrors and you focus all the sun to a center spigot, and that's a giant boiler. So now I'm taking the heat of the sun and I'm forcing it on this salt, and that salt begins to melt. What now temperature does salt melt at? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, actually. I'd have to look it up. Um, but now you're starting to deal with a liquid again. You went from a solid to liquid. It's just the changing the states of matter. Very simple. You know, scientists have been doing this with various forms of things, and Mother Nature does a very good job with it, but with molten rock, right? Um, so that's essentially what we're doing is now I have this giant thermal mass. It takes an intense amount of heat to turn rock into a liquid. Well, now I take that thermal mass and I put it through a heat exchanger and have it act on water. Well, now what happens when the sun goes down? Well, heat doesn't move at the speed of light. I can keep recycling that molten salt over and over. And even though the solar plant is no longer making power, I still have stored thermal energy there that can still boil water. We can still turn turbines. We can still make electricity even after that heat source has gone away. That's the purpose of it. Wow. So there are other mediums there, but that we haven't seemed to quite find something that takes so much energy to kind of get over that initial inertia and get, get the kind of the ball rolling. Um, you know, since, since salt starts as a solid, it takes a lot of inertia to get it rolling. And then at the same time, just it wants to keep rolling. Until it finally slows down. So I am quite intrigued by this, and you know yeah, what's what, you know what's really interesting is um, uh, Carlos. You'll resonate with this. Is um, our Taiji teacher always says, you know, in Yin and Yang theory, you always say Yin Yang. You never say Yang Yin. Yeah. He says, and the reason is because Yin is what generates Yang. And you know, you're talking about creating energy like, you know, to do work, which is a very young thing. And what is it that's 
producing that. Yeah. It's yin. Yeah. It's water or it's or it's solid things that are that are that are taking on a liquid form or something like that. And yeah. that's really where where yang is actually generated from. Mm. It's true. Interesting, because salt would be yeah. considered a yin substance. Yes. Well, right? yeah, yeah. Anything yeah. that is solid is yin in right. the universe, right? Anything that's sort of airy and open is yang, right? And so this is literally Yin generating yang. Yeah, <laughs> that's and, what we're talking about. It's cool. You know, in alchemical terms, um, you know, salt is earth, which is um, yeah. mother, right? In in uh, mm-hmm. alchemical terminology, so it's yeah, feminine. yeah, yeah. Right. So salt is in Chinese medicine in the kidneys, the water element. Yeah, there it is. It's, it it's got it's Carlos really and cool. Satch nerding out. Well, I was in just the, nerding out for what the last fifteen in their minutes. Own way. So yeah, cool. a, yeah, we yeah. all have our own ways of nerding out. That's yeah, true. We, um, you know, there there are a ton of these. Um, you know. Articles, websites, uh, videos on YouTube about um, various forms of energy production that are non-standard. Mm-hmm. I say that to include things like so-called free energy or alternate energy source uh, production systems, things like that. And a lot of the stuff on YouTube is just flat-out bullshit. It's not even I real. But I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, that it but is I want to ask you bupkis. about this. A lot of it's total uh-huh. trash. However. Mm-hmm. Does it ever? Have you ever run across some ideas that actually might work, or that you've seen do work, but they're just not popular? They're not used very much. Um. Well, or have you looked I, into it too much? I I haven't looked into it too much because I probably am too grounded in my, you know, my understanding of the laws of basic physics. You know, I have a high school education, and I'm a jarhead, and I played football. I'm not that bright. If I can understand these <laughs> concepts, it's not that hard. You are you know, so bright, Mark. <laughs> the listeners You're will so disagree. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> You're a smarty well, pants. You know, I, I will be self-deprecating all the time. Otherwise, I have to keep buying bigger hats. But, you have to change your underwear when you do that, too. It, well, that's defecating. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. You said it, not me. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um, so for me, from my, my standpoint, you know, I'm a redneck. I'm a jarhead, you know, and I'm fine with those terms. I say them with terms of endearment to me, but I'm not Einstein. I'm not Hawking. I'm, you know, I'm not Carl Sagan. You know, I'm not the guys working in the Haldron Super Collider and, uh, you know, identifying dark matter. I'm not at that theory level. I'm grounded firmly in what exists in the physical applications of what those great minds think of. And... For me, I have yet to see any evidence that is also peer-reviewed that says that those things exist. But here's the thing, though, Mark, and I apologize Mm. for interrupting you, but you are a tinkerer. Mm -hmm. And I would think that maybe it would be a fun thing if you found something that that seemed reasonable, but you just weren't sure that you could tinker, and it would be kind of fun. Because there are some some, uh, interesting plans and schematics for things like that that I think probably you could do. It's curious. Uh, it, it is curious, and it's fun to think about. Um, you try not to blow up the Earth, though. Well, it, <laughs> don't create a black hole. That's right. Well, yeah, don't, don't rip a hole in the. Well, there's already one in my soul, Ollie. So, uh, <laughs> but um, <laughs> from a from from a purely curiosity standpoint, there's so many other things that are ooh shiny yeah. to me that that stuff doesn't even really <laughs> register. You know, I could stand there and drool over. You know. Uh, uh, Supermarine Spitfire Mark II, Mark III, Mark VII, and just look at the elegance or a Jaguar like E type. name's Mark. You know, um, <laughs> or look at a Jaguar E type and just look at the form and the function, or, you know, early Corvettes, or or at the same time, I can look at a 59 Les Paul and just 
have. So for me, finding these alternate energy sources just don't seem to register with that one functioning brain cell I have left to <laughs> um, really to, to pique my curiosity. Well, I, how about we ask this in a different way? Okay. Um, based upon your experience and the kind of work that you do, if you could invent something new or a new way to do something or th- find a new theoretical way to make something happen, what would you want to invent? Well, for me, I think right now um, what would drive me to be curious is I would look in the natural world, right? Human beings unto ourselves, we're kind of bound to the planet we're hurtling through space on. So what is like the most energetic properties we see in the natural world? And the first thing that comes to mind is the ocean. You know, the oceans change continents. How do we harness that inherent power and that raw beauty that is in the ocean and turn it into something maybe less elegant? Well, like the, the motion capturing devices that work on waves. Yeah, and we're developing yeah. those things, mm-hmm. but we haven't quite got to the point because the ocean itself, that's a, while there's, you know, heating from the sun and outside forces that are adding energy into that system, um, that's about as close to primordial man of having a perpetual motion device right then and there. The waves always come. The moon always pulls the tides. Those things always exist. And it kind of seems to exist inside of a larger energy source than what we can create here earthbound. So that seems like a place where it's smart um, and it's repeatable and it's predictable. And we're able to use other scientific uh, methods to back that up where wind, a little more fickle, sun, very fickle. Mm. You know, the weather, you know, we still can't really get an accurate forecast three days out. So technically it's the clouds fault. The sun just keeps shining. Yeah. (laughs) But at the same time, that's, you know, but that's the best part is is as long as we got fusion going on in the sun, the waves are going to exist because you're going to get differential heating across the surface of the globe, which is going to drive winds. And then the the time, you know, the, 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 the pole of the moon, the gravitational pole of the moon is going to create tides and you're going to get wave action. And it all just kind of happens without us, having to burn something without us having to strip the earth away to find rare earth minerals or create silica, um, you know, crystals to create photovoltaic cells. We're not taking something from somewhere else. It just kind of is there. And we just need to figure out how to harness that in an effective manner. Well, do you think it's reasonable for us to predict that we're, we'll end up, let me ask that in a better way. Do you think it's reasonable to think that we will be off of fossil fuels in the near future? Um, I was just I watching the Democratic uh, presidential debate the other night, and uh, last night actually, and you know, there's a lot of talk about that. By 2030, California is going to be all renewable, and it's like, that seems really soon. There are countries that have already done it. There are countries, and they have right problems. They're not, it's not an exact science. And you also, if it's in a vacuum... It's well, not that difficult, but you also got to account for the economic drivers of it. True. Problems, but, okay. and, you know, to be fair, we have problems, too. Oh, yeah. We have, everyone has problems. I don't have, I don't I don't have any problems. Our, our baggage is Argyle. No there problem. happens to be plaid. You know, it's, it's, right. it's a different kind of form of the same kind of problem. I mean, spilling, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands or millions of gallons of, of crude oil into our streams or oceans, that's a problem. It is a problem, but what does get ignored... Um, and being a young boy in Texas, walking on the beaches of Galveston and even places in Huntington beaches, you'd have to clean tar off your feet. That oil was naturally coming to the surface. In our instances, when we do spill 
and create these huge economic, uh, economic and environmental disasters when we spill oil like that. It's because we've kind of messed with the natural order of things and yes. created this localized tragedy where the earth kind of just bubbled that stuff to the surface and there was mechanisms through wave actions and other things that, and you know, keeps uh, it in check. It kind of kept it in check, but it still happened. Those things didn't just not happen until we came along. Mm -hmm. They happened, you know, shifts in the tectonic plates would cause releases of masses of oil. You know, there's, there's geological reference of this, but we just happen to be really good at making it happen way too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, too much too soon. Yeah, well, it's our own hubris yeah. is what's getting in the way. Um, we, yeah. you know, humans are very good at being, prideful um fossil fuels we need to do something something needs to happen um because either way if we continue on the path we're going the economic driver that's preventing these technologies is going to be too late the impact on the economy is going to be too great for that to drive some sort of change and that's really what seems to be the the component um that's holding us back um not to mention there's inefficiencies in them you know they're not perfect but there doesn't seem to be the investment in developing these technologies because it's so much cheaper to burn this thing and to pull it out of the ground and to, you know, poison the earth and just clean it up and pay the fines than it is to try and find an alternative method of doing it. And capitalism and things like that just drive that naturally through economic devices worldwide. So yeah. until that kind of attitude change, it doesn't matter if our greatest minds are screaming from the heavens that we're going to, you know, run face first into this wall until the bankers decide that that's a, a prudent investment and there isn't government subsidies involved and other traps, yeah. it's probably not going to gain a lot of traction. It's the same problem that infrastructure has. No yeah. one wants to spend money on a bridge that people are going to ignore. They want to spend the stuff that are going to yep. get them reelected. And you just said it right there. I mean, right. like the, the, the phrase, it's cheaper, is a tricky one because really you have to unpack that because it's not really necessarily cheaper if it's you're looking at it from a currency and the things that we exchange and yeah. stuff that goes into you know ones it's, and zeros in people's bank accounts it's cheaper for the company that's already using a fossil fuel system and right. making billions and billions of dollars yeah on that. but yeah. like but me for example i have solar us. panels on my house and i use my solar panels to charge my electric car and you know what, what with an initial investment things can be cheaper to use renewables yes at the same time the lithium ion battery that is in your car is really toxic. really bad for the Super environment toxic. like oh is it really, really yeah, bad the environmental like if, impact it, it, is huge yeah if you take the if you take the uh, the uh, the prius yeah. which is a, a hybrid vehicle yep. it has a much greater impact than just buying a gasoline car yep and that's because of the strip mining and all the stuff that goes on and the toxic waste that's created after. It's, Rare earth minerals and all that stuff. Yeah, it's it's a Terrible. better solution than just pumping stuff that's going to slowly cook us. Like, I mean, let's let's be honest. We're in a crock pot, and someone slowly keeps turning it from warm to low, and you know, sooner or later, it's going to be on high and we're boil. in a bucket. Yeah, mm, whatever. But it's does it it's not a free lunch free lunches don't exist there's just not there there's a cost to the the planet in mining the lithium and the other materials and the metals and the things that are needed to produce that battery that energy storage anytime you're transferring energy or storing energy or doing anything with it there's a cost just mm. what is that cost and are we willing to bear that cost and does that cost have something that in the end makes it profitable for somebody who's you know. So, so you mentioned a Prius, but what about a Tesla? Do they use the same type of harmful stuff in their batteries? Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. um, so, it, if everyone was driving a Tesla, it wouldn't be better for the environment. It would be better in some ways. It would be worse in others. Just like if everyone built their homes out of wood, which is a renewable resource, 
would we have any forests left? That's really bad for the planet. It's really bad for, you know, the water cycle. It's really bad for the, the, the fauna that use those forests. We've, we've seen the damage of deforestation. Okay, well, let's not use trees because it's bad for the environment. Let's use stone. Well, now you got strip mines and quarries that are creating huge proc marks. And it's no free lunch. Either way you look at it, you can, you're not going to get away from it. Damn. Hmm. Well, I think all that lithium in those batteries could treat a lot of bipolar disorder. <laughs> <laughs> but um, do they still use lithium to treat? That? Yeah, yeah, they yeah, still they do. do. They still do. That's not their you know top choice, but you know. You know, every time um, you see that, there's like that classic model of an atom with like the electrons orbiting in those the three ways. I always wonder, it's a lithium atom because there's oh, three electrons. Oh, oh, oh yeah. lithium okay. is the yeah, third yeah. element okay. in the periodic table. Wow. So I always think, you know, people probably don't notice that, but wow. it's probably well, not intentional, but I always think, cool, well, why do they use lithium? Yeah, that's cool. Um, it's symmetry. Yeah. yeah. They're, people they're, like groups of threes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, you know, every time, you know, we're, we're in California here, Southern California, um, and it's, today is August 1st. Oh, Lunasad. So here we are. And, um, you know, this time of year, it gets pretty hot in Southern California. Every time there's a hot day and I look out at, you know, the blacktop in, in a parking lot or something, and I think how hot the ground really is on a, on a hot summer day. And I always wonder, what would my utility bill be if my house was powering that blacktop to make it that hot? Right. And it makes me think, what a waste of energy that is. It is. Well, it's actually, it, it, you got to look at it from another way. Yeah, yeah. Um, that becomes a giant thermal mass. So that heat, which typically the natural cycle of the earth, where the greenery rejects a lot of the heat and it keeps things cooler, now you're holding that heat there. So when that cloud cover rolls in, uh, that coastal eddy we get, now that heat stays there. Mm-hmm. And then the next day it heats more. Now, now energy isn't escaping that cycle. You're just constantly adding more to it, which the more and more blacktop, the more and more hardscape, the more and more thermal mass you're creating in your cities and stuff like that starts to exponentially increase that global warming because you're not rejecting that heat. It's not being reflected back into space. And at the same time, those are based on petrochemicals. So you're mining, you know, you're mining oil, you're bringing things up to the surface, then you're refining them and then you're creating more carbon gases. So Mm -hmm. it kind of just snowballs in each little... Each little snow crystal, each little yeah. ice crystal becomes another larger and larger and larger. So those giant expanses of highway uh, that are all black or um, all that blacktop, all that hardscape, if there was a way for us to harness that heat and yeah. you know, turn it into another mechanical system, yeah. we don't get the kind of temperatures where we can generate steam. But you know what? That could help with geothermal cooling there could be devices and things and you can they, harvest yeah, that. they do have roads now that are solar panel roads but they just haven't incorporated them everywhere but they've done some experiments on highways and sidewalks and and things like that and they they're functional they produce a lot of energy and can't remember exactly where they're doing it i just remember reading the articles that they were laying them down and, and using them so imagine if we did that all across the country yeah but now you got to get into, you got to look at the economic factor yeah. Where I can lay down five miles of asphalt for pennies on the dollar, and right. you're looking at thousands of dollars per linear foot for exactly. a solar road. Exactly. What? Yeah, it's yeah. you're not going to get anyone to sign off on that. Yeah, it yeah. comes back to what we Taxpayers were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Taxpayers aren't yeah. going to sign off on it. Legislature's not going to sign off of it's it. It's true. Yeah, because they want to get reelected. Yeah. Because yeah. junk food is is cheaper today, right? To eat, although we know that there is an ultimate terrible cost to it. And, and, you know what I mean? And, yeah. Well, Mark Beckelman, it's been a pleasure talking to you. 
certainly has. Thank mm-hmm. you for coming up and uh, hanging out with us tonight. Uh, not a problem. It's really enjoyable. Anytime I can get to hang out with you guys is awesome. So thanks for having me. Well, yeah, and we didn't even talk about when you lived with me and your snakes got out in my house. <laughs> Mistakes <laughs> were made, Oliver. I was, let's, 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 <laughs> was going to bring that up. <laughs> and that's fine. We can revisit the dark, the dark corners of my heart. That's fine. So your but, snakes got or, out. Because yeah, my snakes got out when some, I was a kid. Sometimes you got to let the sleeping snakes lie. Yeah. Let, Could let, you say that again, Carlos? Sometimes you got to let the sleeping snakes lie. So a little less lispy. <laughs> let's try it one more time. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> you have to let the sleeping snakes lie. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados, Satch Purcell, and Oliver Altine. Very special thanks to our guest today, Mark Beckelman. Please subscribe to The Authenticity Show wherever you get your podcasts and find us on social media. We would love to connect with you. My name is Oliver Altine. I record, edit, and produce this show, and I was also a co-host today. I also wrote our theme music, which you're listening to right now, And the interstitial music this time was a song I wrote a while back called Lost in the World, here performed by my band Dry River from an album called Praying for the Rain. Anyway, thank you for listening to the show. Have an authentic day.